Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Um, my family, I want to say, we want to start off this morning just by saying thank you. Um, as a church, you are so gracious to us, um, just in the way that you've received us and moving to New Orleans back at the end of December, but then also just allowing us some time away. And so this past week, my family and I had the chance to go visit my brother-in-law and his wife in Colorado um, to go and see them. And so uh, I wanted you to get to see a little bit of our, our family adventure this week, because for our kids, this was the first time in snow. Um, for all of us, it was a first time skiing, except for Cole, who had done that before. But I've got a video that I want to share with you real quick. Um, this is my son, Grayson, yep. and, and my sister-in-law is teaching him. There he goes. All right. Does great. Now, I want to show you that video again. Now, th- th- you got to see Grayson doing really well. There's a man in the background that's going backwards like, down the mountain. Yep. That's your pastor. <laughs> So that's, uh, that really captures what happened this past week for me. It's kind of going backwards down the mountain. Um, so anyway, so thank you for times away to be with family. Uh, that just refreshes us and allows us then to be able to serve you more faithfully. So thank you for that. This morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. And I'm excited that we're in this series going through the book of Ephesians a book that's all about unity, unity within the body of Christ. Um, And I established, I think, last week that we are in divided times, that you name an issue. Um, You you talk about politics, you talk about racism, you talk about COVID-19. I mean, bring up something today, and it's a divisive issue, and there's lots of debate about that. And so then all of that divisiveness comes into the church. And it's not just here in New Orleans, it's, it, it's in all churches right now of just these, this sense of division of, of can we actually worship together? Um, you know, do we have to be politically aligned? Do we have to be on the same page about COVID-19 in order to coexist? And the reality is that scripture speaks a message about the, the essence of our unity, that we have something substantial that bonds us together. And so last week we looked in chapter one to see that we have a father like no other. We have a father like no other, and that is who unites us. It's our father who brings us together in Christ. Remember, we established that, how important that is, that we be in Christ, bringing us together, and that that is the grounds for our unity. So we have one father, one God and father who is over all. And so now this week, as we turn to chapter two, what we see in Ephesians chapter two is that second, we have a faith like no other. So we have a father like no other, but then secondly, what we're going to see is kind of a banner over chapter two is this, that we have a faith like no other. The illustration that was um, explained to me many times about how, we, how world religions often operate is to imagine in your mind that God is on top of a mountain and that religions are different paths up to God. So you may choose Hinduism, you may choose Islam, I may choose Christianity, someone else may be Jewish, you know, all of these things, but those are just all different paths up the mountain to God. And that was a basic explanation for world religions. And why all religions exist is they're just different pathways all trying to get us up the mountain to God. But what I want us to see today and what God's word makes so clear in Ephesians chapter two and what makes us able to say that we have a faith like no other that unites us is that ours is the, the story 
Ours is the message, ours is the gospel of God coming down the mountain and coming to a people in order to rescue them. We have a faith like no other. And it bonds us together in Christian peace, in peace under God our Father, in peace under Christ Jesus our Lord, in peace that comes by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit that is like no other. Ours is not a faith of work hard to get up the mountain. Ours is a faith of God having come down the mountain. And so I want to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we hear Ephesians chapter 2, receiving from God this message of grace. Beginning in verse 1 in chapter 2, God's word says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility." In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he has put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the 
the message of grace. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift. I thank you for that message of grace that establishes the faith, this faith, as distinct from all other faiths, God. For we acknowledge that we have received the gift of your salvation. And it is not by our works, and we cannot boast before you, but we give you all of our praise in this moment, returning our hearts to the good news of the gospel and asking, God, that you would equip us to bring this gospel to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. This passage unites us in Christ because we have a father like no other. But what is established in chapter two is that we have a faith like no other. And there's three aspects or three movements in this passage that really give the anchor points to our faith that helps us to kind of grip our faith and hold on tight to it, understanding the truth of the gospel. And so what we see first of all is that we are united. We are united in death. We are united in death. You see, now that's a unity that not many people gravitate towards. They don't like to talk about being united in death. They want to be united for a cause or for a purpose. But for us to really grasp the good news of the gospel, we must first understand that we are united in death. Notice what Paul does as he begins this passage. After which, again, we have to go back to the context of chapter 1. He has just ended it in this incredible passage of praise. And then to transition here seems to kind of almost shift in a negative direction. But Paul knows, Paul understands how important it is that we never forget the height from which we have fallen. So that we'll never forget just how low God has come and coming down to us to rescue us and bring us back to him. Notice what he says. He provides these characteristics of death, if you will. Number one, we see that death is characterized by trespasses and sins. We see that it's in accordance with the ways of this world. We see that death is in accordance with the ruler of the power of the air. To to be in death is to be disobedient. To be in death is to be living in fleshly desires. To be living in death is to be carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And to be in death is to be by nature children of wrath. This is the explanation of death. The world, the devil, and the flesh have proven to be compelling powers that have led all of humanity humanity into acts of defiance and deviance against the holy and righteous character of God. These three forces, the world, the devil, and the flesh, form together an inescapable bond, a death trap, that keeps humanity from God and on a daily path of sin and thought and conduct. Now, Gentiles and Jews living in the world in Paul's day would not have had trouble grasping and and accepting Paul's diagnosis of the human dilemma. Some of the Gentiles, however, may have had difficulty understanding the inner inclination to evil that Paul calls the flesh, especially if they had been influenced by common thoughts of the day such as Stoicism. They may have more readily accepted the world and the idea of evil spirits, 
Contemporary Westerners, however, by contrast, often have much greater difficulty accepting the notion of a personal being called the devil that influences humanity through a realm of evil spirits. Some academics even speak of this as mythological language that just reflects the outmoded worldview of Paul's day, but that it's irrelevant to us in our modern sensibilities. Paul, however, viewed the devil and evil spirits as a reality that had to be dealt with. And it wasn't just because he lived 2,000 years ago. And so it is that we today are confronted with the same three realities, the world, the devil, and our flesh, as this cocktail, if you will, that influences us on a daily basis and influences all things. We today as believers, spanning every culture and every part of the world, must grapple with these three. Whatever the difficulty may be, one may have in accepting Paul's diagnosis, he presents a balanced worldview that accords with the rest of the biblical revelation and needs to be integrated into our contemporary Christian worldview. You see, when I travel and why I think it's so good for believers to do short-term mission trips is because as you go and you interact with other believers in other places, as you begin to see them come to Christ and begin to grow in their faith, you see that they will emphasize and experience things that to you, and as a, a Westerner from the United States of America, would consider very foreign, very, very odd. For example, in traveling in Africa, there is a strong acknowledgement in many African nations, whether it be in Western Africa, whether it be in Southern Africa, of the spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm is characterized by, by darkness. It's characterized as something that you want to avoid and that you want to appease. And so in order to appease the evil spirits in the dark realm, they'll do things. They'll wear charms. They'll do sacrifices. They'll, they'll go through all of these expenditures of their income in order to do things to protect themselves from the evil spirits. Well, many times when Westerners go over, they immediately almost laugh at the, at the people in these other nations saying, I can't believe you're wasting your money on this. Why are you doing this? Why are you acting like there's evil spirits and all of these things? And it gives us a way that we struggle to embrace the darkness in which we live. That we struggle to really allow a biblical worldview to saturate our understanding of why things are the way they are, both here and there. Notice Paul does not provide specifics, though, as he goes through this description and these characteristics of death. He doesn't provide specifics about which sins or which trespasses have been committed. He does not say that some are more dead than others. Man, this guy is really dead, but this one's not so dead. He lays down a blanket statement of every believer. Notice how that unites them as all being in death. There's not one person that was less dead than another. You, speaking to all of us, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived. If I were to ask each of you to share the story of when you became a Christian. Actually, I love it. Frank Catalanato asked me this morning, so tell me your testimony. Tell me when you became a Christian. We need to do that with each other. We need to ask the story of God's grace in one another's lives to hear and to be able to extend worship to the Lord for what he's done in each other's lives. But if I were to ask 
everyone in this room to share their, tes- their testimony of when they became a Christian. I feel certain that at some point I would hear several of you say, well, my testimony of becoming a Christian is pretty boring. I grew up in the church, I heard the gospel, and I knew I needed Jesus to forgive me of my sins, so I prayed with an adult or my parent and gave my life to Jesus. God says to you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived. Living according to the ways of this world as a nine-year-old boy, according to the ruler of the power of the air, is an 11-year-old girl, the spirit that is now working in the disobedient. And to God, it's like in this passage, he speaks to you and says, what I have done for you is not boring. It is amazing that in my grace, I would reach down and bring life to your dead soul. You see, we are united by a common diagnosis, dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what unites us more than anything else in this room is that we were dead. Our common diagnosis is not a lack of education, though Christians have historically been champions of excellent education, especially for those who lacked access. Our common diagnosis is not economic inequality, though Christians have historically been champions for fair treatment and compensation for the most easily extorted and neglected. Our common diagnosis is not a lack of adequate health care. Though Christians have been historically champions for delivering health care to the suffering, the war-torn, the poor, and the sick. No, our common diagnosis is dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, I mentioned lack of education, economic inequality, and lack of adequate health care because those represent three prominent ideologies of the world in which the ruler of the power of the air has convinced the disobedient to be our ultimate problem. They would disagree with Paul in verse 1 that our ultimate problem is that we're dead in our trespasses and sins and would instead replace our ultimate problem with another ideology something to give everything to solving. But remember, this book, which we are reading, is not the rantings of someone on Facebook or Twitter to be dismissed or say, well, I don't really agree with it. These are the very words of God. God is saying in Ephesians 2.1 that the ultimate problem for mankind is that they are dead in their trespasses and sin. That is our ultimate problem. Oh, that we would awaken to this biblical reality. These other ideologies are not circulated on extreme websites. They are published in scholarly journals. They are taught in prestigious institutions. They are held by professionals. And then we walk in as Christians seemingly being pushed into a corner of of suggesting that education and economics and healthcare don't matter. Only religion matters. But that is not what we proclaim. You see, religion is man's attempt to get at God, to climb the mountain. But the gospel is the historical record of how God came down the mountain and rescued man. And I want you to hold on for just one second to the lack of education. I want you to to hold on for one more second with me 
about economic inequalities. I want you to hold on for one more second about inadequate healthcare provisions and, and the needs that plague our communities. I want you to hold on to those for one second, realizing that those are symptoms of death, that those are symptoms of a dying world. Those are symptoms of our need. But if we only treat the symptoms, if we only treat the symptoms, we will not arrive at life. There will not be ultimate liberation. We will not have eternal life. You see, to be united in death positions us to then hear verses four down through nine, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. To be united in life is to be united in grace. To be united in life is to be united in Christ. To be united in life is to be united in faith. Holding those, those tensions, those, those problems, those symptoms of death that we want to see alleviated in this world. I want you to consider for a moment that the ultimate problem for mankind is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. If that is our condition, then notice how perfectly designed is the remedy. See how the punishment, the cross, fits the crime, transgression against the holy God. See how the manner of salvation, a humble servant coming down and rescuing us, matches the giver of salvation, the one who's described as the great love with which he had for us. If education were our ultimate problem, then why didn't we see Jesus teach more broadly? And why did his teaching constantly suggest that mankind is sinful? and in need of forgiveness and God's grace. If economics was our ultimate problem, then why didn't Jesus create more jobs rather than hand out fish and bread? Why did he commend Mary and gently rebuke Martha? Is it not that God, it's not that God opposes work. We'll see in Ephesians chapter four, where God says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. But that comes in chapter four, following what happens in chapter two. If healthcare was our ultimate problem, then why did Jesus heal rather than treat? But if sin was our greatest debt, then the cross of Christ makes full payment. If death was our condition, then the resurrection of Christ opens the door from death to life. If we could not work to earn our salvation, then it would only be able to be received as a gift, grace. If salvation is something that God does for us through Christ, then it would make sense that it could only be granted through faith alone. You see, if you tell me that you have pancreatic cancer, and I tell you the gargle with salt water, which was my grandmother's solution to all ailments. The solution does not fit the condition. If you tell me that you're addicted to pornography, and I tell you, well, stop looking at pornography, the addiction will remain. If you tell me that your marriage is failing, and I tell you, well, start doing a date night once a month, 
your marriage is still going to fail. And when someone describes the conditions of death, when they describe lack of education and failing schools and and children who don't graduate high school, who then end up incarcerated and doing drugs and, and all of these other things, they're describing death. When you talk about economic inequality and how people get stuck in this, in this cycle of indebtedness and of payday loans and all these things that just go further and further down the hole, you're describing death. And when you talk about lack of health care and people dying from preventable diseases and clean water lack and all of these things, you're describing death. But more than that, when you talk about people who could do something, not doing anything, you're describing death. You're describing desires of the flesh. When you start describing people who are spending everything they make on themselves and on their entertainment and and of no concern for other people, you're describing death. When you describe death and when you hear of death and when you are confronted with death in this world and you simply respond with verse 10, do good works. You're telling someone with pancreatic cancer to gargle with salt water. When we try to cause the dead to do good, apart from verbalizing the good news of Jesus Christ, we have done nothing. We have done nothing. But if we be united in death and then be raised up with Christ, to be seated with him in the heavenly places, as Paul describes at the end of, or toward the end of of this section. And if it's true that we're saved by grace, that even while we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. If these things are true, Then and only then, and listen, this is the good news that we need. Then and only then are we united in peace. United in peace as the people of God. And then and only then, after we have realized and acknowledged our death before him and acknowledged that the only way to life is to believe in Jesus Christ, to have faith, to trust in his accomplished work at the cross for us, to believe that it's only through his resurrection that I can have life. Then and only then do we enter into verse 10, which says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Then, then we can move into the Christian unity that we see on display in verses 11 down through 22. You see, it's only then that these true divisions, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, these true divisions excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and with God in the world, it's only then in Christ, having acknowledged death and now come to life, that then we can move into this beautiful new creation, but now. I mean, you saw it back up just a moment ago in verse 4. But God, look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is, and listen, here's the word, and you're going to see it again and again in this passage. He is our peace. Is that our peace? Is our peace... Just hoping that 
the political stuff will just die down and then we'll be able to come back together? Is our peace hoping that COVID-19 will, will hopefully pass and then we can take off our mask? Is that our peace? Is our peace just based on changing circumstances, none of which that we can control? Is that our peace of just hoping that things die down? That's a pseudo peace. That, that's a, a marriage that right when they start to kind of have those conflicts with one another and then somebody just bows out and says, yeah, I just don't want to deal with it. And they walk away and they said, we'll just let it calm down and we'll have peace again. But that's not peace. Peace is what Rick Warren calls the tunnel of conflict because it's only in going through the tunnel of conflict that you come out to the road of intimacy. And that is how the gospel of Jesus Christ works. It is only as we go into this conflict of recognizing our sinfulness and unworthiness before him that then we can ever truly come out on the other side of realizing that in Christ we are forgiven. And in Christ we are made a new creation. And in Christ we are prepared to do good works which he created for us to do. And I want you to look at verse 14. Because verse 14 ushers us into a different kind of living. It, it ushers us into a new way of seeing one another and a new way of living in our communities and in this world. Verse 14 says, For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. You see, throughout Christian history, it has been these grounds of what God has done that, is, that have ushered men and women into faithful Christian service for Christ in their professions. You talk about education and the importance of education. There's so many studies and so many statistics about the importance of graduating high school. There's so many statistics about the value of then going on to, to college and getting a four-year degree. There's all of these statistics and data that suggest, you know, these economic, you know, mobility that comes from education. But when you just give a person education and you don't give them the gospel, then they become conceited before the Lord. They, they develop an arrogance. They boast before him. But when you give education with the gospel, you look like a man named George Mueller. A man who, who saw the poverty and the lack of education for orphan children in his community. And so took it upon himself to begin an orphanage where he would care for the needs of the children. And where he determined that he would only pray for the provision of the needs that when food was needed, he would pray for it. When milk was needed, he would pray for it. When money was needed, he would pray for it. He would always wait upon the Lord. And God provided again and again for the orphans there. But they were provided an education. And they were provided a place to live. They were provided nurturing. They were provided food. But don't miss it. Because Christ got this man who had once been dead in his sin, but then he realized that I'm alive in Christ and I've been created in him to do good works. Then he looked at what was a barrier, children without parents and then normal family structures that you had over here on this side. And, and, and rather than treating it as an us then, he recognized that the dividing wall had been torn down. And so he went to the hurting children and he created 
a place where they could learn and where their lives were forever changed. It's important for us to see that education did matter. But in Christ, he was allowed, he was infused with the Holy Spirit in order to go and to live a robust way of dealing with education. You talk about economic. Lemuel Haynes, the first ordained black American, combated the false teaching that perpetuated slavery, which is one of the greatest economic injustices the world has ever seen, both here locally in our own nation and in other places. And specifically, as an ordained minister, he combated what was called the myth of Ham. Ham being one of the sons of Noah, and from Ham came the people group called the Canaanites. And a a lie, a myth that was perpetuated in America during the 1700s and 1800s, and even into the 1900s, and still remains today in some churches, is this idea that everyone in Africa, all black people, were Canaanite descendants. And they were therefore cursed because of the curse that was placed on Ham. And therefore, that gave a legitimacy to the institution of slavery. In other words, they were getting what they deserved. And Lemuel Haynes combated that with this verse by saying, when the sun of righteousness arose, the wall of partition was broken down. And he acknowledged in his sermons that even if it were true that these were descendants of Canaan, these were the modern day Canaanites, that when Christ came, he had abolished every curse. He had brought life for all. And so therefore, in so doing, he ushered in an economic equality within his community. He combated lies that were, that were separating people and perpetuating injustices of structure. It's important for us to see, even in, even in our own history within this country, how economic injustices have been combated with the gospel of Jesus Christ and in meaningful and in powerful ways. But then in healthcare, what was amazing to me was watching Teresa Flores, a missionary in the country of Lesotho. As we set up clinics and we go around doing things, one night she got a call that a man was unable to travel to the clinic and he was close to where they lived and that they, they needed her to come to the home. So she said, Chad, I want you and another guy to come with me right now. And so we go into the home, this, this rondable, this little hut of a man who's lying on the bed and his entire abdomen area is just swollen, so taut and full. And so she begins to diagnose him as a, as a registered nurse and using her medical experience there. And then she looks at him. She asks him some questions. She determines that for his life, for many, many years, he has, he has drunk alcohol. He has drank alcohol very heavily. And so she looks and she says, this man, this man is in liver failure. And so she looks at him and she says, sir, you will die soon. And there's nothing that I can do to rescue you. But there's a man that has come from America and he has come to tell you something very important. You need to listen to him. You need to listen to the words that he says. And then she looks at me. She says, Chad, tell the gospel to this man. So I'm, I'm like, right, right now? And she's like, yes, right now. Tell, tell, them, tell this man the gospel. So I begin to share the good news of Jesus Christ, verses 1 through 10, with this man. 
explaining to him and I'm fumbling over my words and I'm doing it through a translator. And so it's so choppy. And so I get no credit. There was nothing eloquent in what I had to say. I, I felt like I was butchering the gospel that I knew, but I was struggling in this moment to deliver. And then all of a sudden, what I witness is this man extend his hands to heaven from his bed and cry out to God. He just begins to cry out. He's saying things. He's just speaking and speaking, and he's calling out to the Lord. And the translator says, she's, it says he's calling out to God. He's asking God to forgive him of his sins. He, he's asking God to save him. Well, we left. The man did not miraculously heal in that moment. His liver was destroyed by alcohol. But about three weeks later, after we'd gotten back from that mission trip, the missionaries sent us a message and said, we had to tell you the rest of the story. After you left, for two weeks we heard nothing, and then the wife called us and said, my husband just died in a hospital in the capital city. Now the woman, she was there, the wife was there, and she said that she was already Christian, but she was actually part of a cult, a group that carried the name of Jesus in name only, but there was no substance of the gospel. It was a works-based religion. And so she said to the missionaries, when you left, my husband was no longer the same man. He, he called all of our children together and he apologized to them for beating them and for drinking and, and abusing them and all of the things that he had done wrong, he apologized to them. He, he apologized to me as his wife and said to me, you are a good woman. He has never told me that I'm a good woman. He's never told me this before. And then she said, as we went to the hospital, he began to tell everyone at the hospital about Jesus. He began to tell them that he had been saved, even though he was dying, that he had been saved, that he had a new heart, and he would tell with them about the gospel. And now that he has died, his, his desire was for you to come and to share this message with our entire village at his funeral. And I, I want to know this Jesus also, because whatever he has done for my husband, I need him to do for me. That's medical health care coupled beautifully with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because how awesome would it have been if she could have simply said, well, you could have a liver transplant. My mom's had a liver transplant, not because of alcoholism. But if he had simply received a new liver, the best in health care, this incredible, extraordinary, life-saving surgery that gives him a brand new organ, would it have rescued that man from death? Would a new liver have resulted in him bringing his family together, his children, and saying, I am sorry for what I've done to you. I am sorry for the abusive drunk that I've been. I am sorry for all the things that I have done in this life against you and against God. Would a new liver have resulted in him sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to every doctor and nurse that he came in contact with? Would a new liver have transformed this man's soul so that now he is free. Now he is alive. You say, well, Chad, I thought you said he died. I did, but he's alive in Christ forever. And in the day of Christ, he will be resurrected and he will not have a body that has a failing liver anymore. He'll receive an imperishable body that will not wear out. All of this because 
This man was dead and now he is alive and created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Even in his last two weeks, he led more people to Christ than many believers who are believers for 50 or 60 years here in the country, in our own country. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we are united by a faith like no other. It is a faith that is good for every people group, every cultural condition, for every malady that we face, economics, healthcare, education, it changes you. And then God sends you to be the change, to do the good works created in Christ Jesus that he made you to be. But none of that happens. None of that happens while you're dead. None of that happens while you remain dead and trying to skip over verses 4 through 9 to get to good works. You see, we're all hungry for the good works. We are a people here in the West who want to get to the good works, who would feed children like we saw today, who would be concerned about children eating but never being fed Jesus Christ. That is settling for too little. We, we have got to be the people of God who constantly marry the two. The, the, the ones who, as we see hungry children, say, we bring you this food in Jesus' name. Who bring the gospel to these hurting families. Who go to them as God has come to us in Christ Jesus to do these good works in the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you're here today and you're wanting that life of good works, which we should all want, then I want you to know, first of all, that you are dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. You live according to the ways of this world. There is a spirit, a dark spirit that is at work in you that you don't even realize. And by nature, you are a child of wrath. In other words, what you ought to get from God is punishment. And maybe for the first time in your life, you are realizing that is true of you. And you've never admitted that before. You've always thought of yourself as a pretty good person. But today, by the grace of God and his word, you are seeing your true condition of death. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love that he had for you, he made you alive with Christ, even though you were dead in your sins. It is by grace that you are saved. That is good news. It is not by works. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It is his gift that he gives through faith. If that's you today, and you have never by grace, through faith in Christ alone, received his salvation, but you've been working for it. You've been working hard. You've been trying to be a, a verse 10 kind of person without just living in the gospel. I want to encourage you, trust Christ today. I'm going to ask for everyone to stand for this moment. And I want to pray over you. God, I pray in this moment of stillness that if there be even one person here today who has never acknowledged that they were dead and trusted you in Christ for salvation, that today would be the day of salvation that you would raise them up with Jesus. 
If that's you today, would you just lift your hand where you are? I want to pray for you right where you are. That today is the day that you're saying, I am tired of being a dead person trying to do good works. I want Jesus. I want his gift of grace. I want to be made alive. That's you. Just lift your hand. I want everyone to look at me for a moment. Then based on what I've just seen, you were dead, but now in Christ, you are alive and you have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. So walk. Walk out these doors into this city in the name of Jesus, armed with this message of death to life. Do it in education. Do it in healthcare. Do it in business. Bring this good news to every part of your life.